So this morning, we are beginning this little book of the Bible called Ruth. And uh, you may have had trouble finding it because it's only four chapters long. It's not a super long book. Um, but unique, Ruth is a really unique book in the Bible and a, and a fun book to go through. First of all, it's a love story. Not a lot of love stories in the Bible, but this is a love story. It tells the story of this poor Moabite woman named Ruth who meets and marries this rich guy from, from Bethlehem by the name of Boaz. But it's not just a love story between Ruth and Boaz. I, I think it's just as much a love story between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, which is what we're gonna see a little bit today. Secondly, Ruth is one of the only two books of the Bible that's named after a woman. The other one is the book of Esther. And it's not just that Ruth is named after a woman or tells the story of a woman. Ruth very much uniquely is told from a woman's perspective. We experience the events of the book of Ruth through the eyes of the women of the story. And so for that reason, I, I see Ruth as being really a uniquely feminine book in the Bible, which of course is very ironic, considering that a big chunk of our women are off on a retreat. And so they're gonna miss out on this most feminine book of the Bible. Nonetheless, I do think that Ruth has much to say to both of men and women about God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's steadfast love, and God's redemption. And so let's take a look at Ruth. We're gonna pick it up right at the very beginning. And let's take a look at Ruth chapter one, verses one and two. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. As we open up the book of Ruth, there's two things that we learn about the setting of the story that is gonna be really important for us. First, it says that the events of this take place in the days when the judges ruled. And secondly, it takes place when there's a famine in the land. So we wanna look at both of those because it's important to put it in its context to really understand what's going on in the plot of the book. So first of all, it says it takes place in the days when the judges ruled. Now we know something about the days that the judges ruled because we just went through as a church uh, a whole series on the book of Judges. And so the Ruth is taking place in that same timeline as the events that take place in the book of Judges. If you remember, the book of Judges covers a 400-year period of history in the, in the history of Israel from the time of the Exodus, basically, until the time when the monarchy is established in Israel. And as we went through the book of Judges, we saw that this was a very dark time for Israel. This was a time when Israel was falling away from the Lord, and they began worshiping the gods of the people around them. And as a result of this, compromising in their worship of God, Israel begins descending into moral chaos in a downward spiral. And that moral chaos leads to political oppression to the point where when we get to the very end of the book of Judges, we ends with a terribly depressing note. Turn, turn back one page in your Bible from Ruth and, and you'll see that you're in Judges. And look at the very last verse of Judges because I think this summarizes best for us the whole book of Judges, this last verse in Judges when Ruth is taking place. It says in Judges 21, 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's it. That's the summary of the time of Judges. It's a very, very dark time. And yet amid this political and moral chaos of the time of Judges, we turn the page. And there we see this little book called Ruth. And in Ruth, we get a little glimmer of hope 
during the time of the judges. For we discover in the book of Ruth that not everyone has forsaken the Lord. Not everyone has fallen into idolatry. Not everyone has fallen into immoral and degenerate behavior. Because in the book of Ruth, we see that there is one family, who is at least one family, who has remained faithful to the Lord all through the time of the judges. And so there's this glimmer of hope in Judges. And the Bible has many examples of where we see a remnant of God's people who remain faithful to him, regardless of the culture around them. For example, during the time of Elijah, Elijah was a prophet. He was a prophet during the time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel had killed hundreds of prophets of the Lord. And Elijah was feeling very, very alone all his prophet friends are dead and he's alone in the desert and he cries out to God, oh, I'm all by myself. But look at what Paul says about Elijah in Romans chapter 11. In Romans eleven two, it says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek me. But what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I love that. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. The story of Elijah and the story of Ruth are important reminders that no matter how bad the cultural dis culture descends into political or moral chaos, there is always a remnant of people who will faithfully follow the Lord. Some of you may look at our nation and look at this generation. You think, oh, this is the time of the judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And we may be tempted to give up. We may be tempted to give up for our nation or for this generation. But I want you to remember, God always has a remnant. He always has those who will remain faithful. And it's from this remnant, from this faithful few, that God will bring revival. And that ultimately is the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is how God will take the faithfulness of these two women named Ruth and Naomi and this faithfulness of this guy named Boaz, who we'll meet in chapter two. And from them, he is going to build a national revival in Israel. Now, we're not going to see that revival for a couple of generations. But the roots of that revival is found in this one family that remains faithful to the Lord when everything else around them in Israel seems completely lost. And the way that God is going to bring about this revival in Israel is through a king. He's going to give Israel a king. Remember, at the end of Judges, what does it say? It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. So that seemed to be part of the problem. But I think the problem is more nuanced than that because when it says there was no king in Israel, I want to suggest to you that was only partially true. And let me show you what I mean. When you look at verse two of Ruth chapter one, we're introduced to a man by the name of Elimelech. And it's Elimelech who with his wife, Naomi, takes her two sons and they go off to Moab. But here's what's fascinating. The word Elimelech in Hebrew means my God is king. My God is king. And that is not merely a coincidence because I think the author of Ruth is pointing to the edge end of the judges where it says there is no king in Israel. And yet the very name Elimelech says there's something different. There is indeed a king in Israel. God is the king in Israel. 
And the problem in the time of the judges is not that there's no king in Israel, but that there is a king and they've rejected God as their king. And this is more fully developed when you go to the next book of the Bible, which is 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see Samuel, who's the last judge in Israel, and the people come to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 and say they want to have a king just like all the other nations have a king. And look at what happens in 1 Samuel 8 verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say you all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Both this story in 1 Samuel and the very name of Elimelech, which means my God and king, is a reminder that you cannot just do what is right in our own eyes because there is indeed a king. And God is the king, and therefore he is the one who determines what is right and wrong. Nonetheless, God does grant a human king to Israel. If you continue on in 1 Samuel, you're going to see that God is going to raise up this young shepherd boy by the name of David, and David is going to become the king over Israel. And spoiler alert, if you turn to Ruth chapter 4, what we discover is that Ruth is going to marry this guy named Boaz, and together they're going to have a child, and that child is going to be the grandfather of King David. Look at what it says in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. In the grand narrative of biblical history, King David is the solution to the problem of the time of the judges. David comes on the scene and he brings not just political stability to Israel, but he begins to focus their worship back on the worship of the Lord. And Ruth then becomes part of that grand narrative of how God is going to save Israel. But he's not just going to save Israel, but Ruth is also part of the grand scheme of the Bible where God is actually going to save the whole world. Because while David was indeed a great king, he is just a foreshadow of an even greater king that's going to come. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, very first chapter of the New Testament. When you get to Matthew chapter 1, sometimes we like to skip over the first chapter, but it's so critical for us to see the grand narrative of Scripture from Matthew chapter 1, because we see a genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1.1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, what's it say? David, the son of Abraham. Skip down to verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, there she is, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Skip down all the way down to verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations. The book of Ruth is indeed a beautiful love story. But more importantly, the book of Ruth is part of this broader narrative of the Bible, which shows how God is going to save humanity from its sin by him sending Jesus Christ. And Ruth contributes to this broader storyline by showing us that God is going to accomplish his salvation of the world by using ordinary people 
who are faithful to him amidst challenging circumstances. So Ruth is a good reminder for us. No matter how bad things might get around us, God is always going to have that faithful remnant. And the question for us then is, will we be part of that faithful remnant or will we capitulate to the, to the culture? Will we remain faithful to the Lord and to his word? Will we be the seed of the revival that God will bring either in this generation or in the generation to come? Ruth and Boaz never saw the revival that came under their great-grandson, King David. But the revival only happened because they stayed faithful and they passed it to the next generation. And so we may not see the results of our faithfulness in our lifetime, but God just may use your faithfulness to bring revival to the next generation. So in verse one, we see that this book takes place in the days when the judges ruled. But we also see that this book takes place when there is a famine in the land. And because of this famine, Elimelech and Naomi gather up their two boys and they go off to Moab in order to find food. Moab is the nation that is east of Israel. It's across the Jordan River. And if you remember, when we were going through Judges, in Judges chapter three, there was a king of Moab by the name of Eglon who ruled over Israel for 18 years. And if you remember, that's the story where the judge Ehud comes and he assassinates Eglon, King Eglon, by piercing a sword into him in that really almost grotesque uh, story. But the point of that is that Moab and Israel are not friendly neighbors. They, they, are, they are fighting one another when Elimelech takes his family there. And so the text doesn't actually tell us if it's right or wrong for Elimelech to take his family to Moab. But the fact that we have this famine putting them in such a place that they're willing to move into enemy territory tells you that, that there is a, there's a problem here. Things are not going well. And, and in fact, they, the very fact that they have to leave Bethlehem to find food tells you that there's a problem because the word Bethlehem itself means the house of bread, which means there is no bread in the house of bread. So from these opening verses, we should sense that things are not going well. And they quickly go from bad to worse. Take a look, starting in verse three. It says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And then both Malon and Killian died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. So first her husband dies, Elimelech. And then after his death, Naomi's sons take Moabite women as their wives. And then the text really gives us no indication whether or not that was a good or a bad thing. But what we do see is what started off to be just a temporary sojourn. Now, all of a sudden, these people have established roots in the foreign land. And it says they were there for a decade. And then tragedy hits the family of again, as both Malon and Killian die as well. So that Naomi is left without her two sons and her husband. You can just imagine Naomi as grief is piled upon grief. But worse than that, Naomi has to deal with some pragmatic issues as well. Because without a husband or a son to support her, she now is, has no economic support. She now has no means of physical protection. So not only is she grieving the loss of her, her husband and the loss of her two sons, but she's now impoverished and she's vulnerable. Furthermore, Naomi is facing an existential crisis because she's now been left without a legacy. Having children and grandchildren is how women in those days found their identity. So now Naomi finds her legacy cut off. And that perhaps is to her the worst tragedy of all. 
We cannot underestimate the level of crisis that Naomi is in at the beginning of this book. Some of you this morning may feel like you're in that same kind of crisis, that same sort of grief that Naomi has, where everything seems to be lost. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of financial security, the loss of a dream for the future. And if that's you this morning, I want you to watch Naomi closely. Because even amidst her grief, she knows that God has not forgotten you, forgotten you. And God has not forgotten you either. In Naomi, we see hope. And we see that glimmer of hope starting in verse six. Verse six says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, no, we will return with you to your people. Naomi gets word that the Lord has visited his people. The famine is over. Once again, there's bread in the house of bread. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law move from Bethlehem and the scene shifts now to, to this conversation that they're having while they're on the road from Moab to Bethlehem. Now it's about a 75 mile walk from Moab to Bethlehem. Um, and that may not sound a big, like a big deal to us, but 75 miles when you don't have a car, when you couldn't take a bus, they probably didn't even have a donkey. Um, and so this was gonna be a, a several days journey. And remember, this is the time of the judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's a time of lawlessness. So it would have also been a very dangerous journey for three widowed women to take as they're going along. And somewhere along the line, Naomi realizes that this journey may not be in the best interests of her daughter-in-law. She realizes that they're gonna have a much better time finding a husband back in Moab than they are as poor widowed foreigners in Bethlehem. So Naomi says, go back home, go back home. And then she prays that the Lord would give them husbands back in Moab. Now, that may sound rather patriarchal to our modern ears. If you're gonna read this from a feminist perspective, we, we just wanna like tell Ruth and Orpah, you don't need a husband to find security. But, but to do that is to take these women out of their cultural context. Remember, this is a pre-industrial agrarian society and women didn't have a lot of options back then. It's, it's not like they could start knitting hats on Etsy to make money. That's, that's not how things worked back then. Women in ancient society weren't able to own land. They weren't able to get a job to earn their living. The very, maybe, maybe they could sell themselves into slavery. That, that could be an option. But the better option for them would be to go back home to their family and to look for a new husband. So Naomi says, Lord, give them rest in the house of her husband. Initially, both Ruth and Orpah protest. No, 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 we're gonna, we're gonna go with you to, to, to Bethlehem. And so Naomi makes her case even more forcefully, starting in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, but Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake 
that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi gives Ruth and Orpah three reasons why they need to go back home. She says, first of all, look, I don't have any more sons waiting in my womb for you to marry. Secondly, she said, I'm, I'm too old to get a husband. So there's not going to be any more children coming for me. And then third, she says, and even if I did have a husband and we conceived tonight, are you really going to wait until that baby is grown that you could marry, you could marry another one of my sons? Now, that's all might sound, sound rather odd to us. I mean, why does Naomi presume that their only prospect for a husband is more offspring from her, having unborn sons? Well, the ancient, there is this ancient custom in the time, which is recorded for us in Deuteronomy 25, that says when a man dies without having a son, that a surviving brother is to marry that widow. And then any children that are produced by that new marriage would then be raised to allow the brother's family line to continue. And so Naomi is saying, look, I don't, you're, there's no more brothers for you to marry. I don't have any more sons that you, you are going to take over this duty to become your husband. And so she is just looking honestly. And she says, look, your prospects of a new husband with me are pretty dim. You're better off just going home and finding a different husband. And Orpah gets it. Orpah understands. She knows the reality of the situation. So even though it grieves her, she kisses Naomi and she goes back to Moab. With Orpah gone, Naomi then tries to convince Ruth to make the sensible choice and to go back with her sister-in-law. Take a look starting in verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to follow from or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth said, stop trying to convince me to go back to Moab. And then she gives this most remarkable statement of commitment, which I think is not just the heart of this chapter, but is perhaps the heart of the entire book of Ruth. She says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lie down, I will lie down. Your people will be my people. And then she says, your God will be my God. Don't, don't rush over that last statement. Your God will be my God. Ruth, the Moabitess, she is making a confession of faith that she believes in Naomi's God and she's committing herself to the God of Israel. You see, Ruth is deciding not just based upon her social or economic prospects, whether or not it'd be better to be in Bethlehem or Moab. In fact, if those were her only considerations, returning to Moab is the no-brainer choice, right? That's the common sense answer. But when Naomi says in verse 15, that when Orpah returned home, she returned to her gods. Now Naomi has turned this into a theological question, not just a practical question. If Ruth were to go home, she would be returning to her old gods. But if she moves forward with Naomi, she is moving forward with the Lord, the God of Israel. Think about what Ruth is committing to here. She is making the choice to follow God when that makes no earthly sense to do so. 
She puts her hope in God rather than a husband. She puts her hope in God rather than in prosperity and security. She puts her hope in God for the future rather than looking to the gods of her past. And then in verse 18, she does this oath. She says, may the Lord do so to me also if anything but death parts you from me. This, the structure of this oath is very common in the Old Testament. Basically says, if I break this oath, God, you should kill me. But what's more significant is not the oath itself, but who it is she swears the oath to. She's not swearing the oath to the gods of Moab. She's swearing the oath to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the question is for us, if you were in Ruth's position, what choice would you make? She doesn't choose the path that's going to bring her automatically the most security or prosperity. Choosing the Lord here is actually the harder choice, which forces us to ask the question, why do we follow the Lord? Do we follow him because we assume that that is the most likely path to security or prosperity? If so, when God doesn't bless us in the manner or the quality that we want him to, it's going to reveal our true motives and we're going to end up walking away from him. Christ says in Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, Christ does not promise us that he's going to make life easier. Christ doesn't promise us that he's going to give us a husband. He doesn't promise he's going to give us a wife. He doesn't promise security or prosperity. He doesn't promise us health. He doesn't promise us any of those things. But what he does promise is that he'll bring us a life of joy no matter what comes our way. And he promises us both new life in this world and eternal life in the world to come. Ruth makes her choice to follow Naomi and Naomi's God because she realizes that following the Lord is better than having a husband, better than having a family, better than having prosperity, better than having security. For following the Lord can only bring you joy in the midst of the inevitable tragedies that will come our way. Jesus in Matthew 13 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. People, Jesus is the treasure in the field. And he is of such great value that he is worth giving up everything you have. He's worth giving up every hope and dream you have in order to obtain him because it's better to live the Lord, live with the Lord in, a, in prosperity than to live without him. May the Lord give us eyes to see and delight in the great treasure that is Jesus so that he may give us a faith like Ruth to pursue him over and above everything else this world has to offer. But why is it that Ruth knows this? Ruth didn't grow up in church. She didn't read her. She didn't have much of a Bible to read. How does she know that following the Lord is better? She knows it because she has been watching her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth sees something in Naomi that showed that following God through tragedy is better than a life of security with him. Ruth sees Naomi at her lowest point. She's hungry. She's widowed. She's destitute. She's even bitter in her circumstances, it says. And yet Naomi remains faithful to the Lord throughout the entire book of Ruth. Throughout this chapter, Naomi keeps talking about the Lord, even in her affliction. Verse 9, she, she asks the Lord to give rest to her daughters. In verse 13, she acknowledges the Lord's sovereignty, even her in her affliction. She says, the Lord has gone out against me. Yet, even though she sees her tragedy as coming from the Lord, she does not walk away from him. She may have struggles, she may have doubts, but she never gives up on God. 
And it's not just like Naomi's pretending everything's okay. She's not just slapping a smile on her face and saying, hey, everything's great. No, she's not. She's bitterly, she's bitter. In verse 20, which we're gonna see in just a second, she goes to the women of Bethlehem and she says, change my name. I am no longer Naomi, which means pleasant. I am Mara, which means bitter. She is bitter before the Lord. And yet she still believes and she still trusts in the Lord. In this way, Naomi reminds me a lot of Job. If you don't know the story of Job, in Job chapter one, this marauding band comes and attacks his household and slaughters all 10 of his children and takes away all of his livestock and everything that he owns. I want you to imagine that for a moment. We just gloss over that. I want you to imagine that. Somebody comes into your house and kills every one of your children and then takes everything you own. How are you feeling? How would you respond? This is how Job responds in Job 120. It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we might be tempted to think, well, Job's just keeping a stiff upper lip. You know, well, came, came in naked, going, in, going back to the grave naked. But that's not it. He's not just stoically accepting this tragedy because Job is grieving deeply. I mean, tearing your clothes, shaving your face. These are signs, external signs of deep grief. But in the midst of that grief, it says, he still worshiped the Lord. Our circumstances may change, but the Lord never changes. In our lives, there's going to be times of blessing. There's going to be times of suffering. There's going to be times of prosperity. There's going to be times of famine. But the Lord is still sovereign over both. No matter our circumstances, God is in control. He gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Like Naomi and like Job, the apostle Paul also faced a lot of adversity. And look at what Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 11. Paul says, I have learned to abound in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We like to take that last part out of context, don't we? But what Paul is saying here is I can do all things, which, which means I can bear up under any tragedy because in my greatest weakness, that's when I have access to God's great strength. And Ruth sees this in Naomi. There's no other reason for Ruth to follow this bitter old woman who has absolutely nothing to give. No, no prospect of a husband, no wealth, no security, no family. So Ruth leaves her family in Moab behind and goes on to Bethlehem. Why? Because Naomi's faith in the Lord in the midst of trouble. And Ruth wants that same type of hope for her. So she commits herself to Naomi and she commits herself to God. You know, people are quick to acknowledge God when things are going well. That's why like when somebody wins an Oscar at the Academy Awards, they say, oh, thanks. I want to thank God, you know, first. Or they win the Super Bowl. I want to thank God. But, but, but it's only when we're going through difficult times that our faith becomes real. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. So, so if, we are, if we are faithful in blessing, well, that's not really faith because we can see that. But when we can't see the blessing, when faith is a struggle, that's when holding onto your belief in God becomes real. And it's in those moments that people will take notice. Maintaining faith in suffering is what gets people's attention. First Peter 3.14 says this, 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ Jesus, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, our hope and our faith become most obvious to others when it stands in stark contrast to our suffering. And so a faith that continues to follow after God when you get that cancer diagnosis, when, when you lose a loved one, when you lose a job, that kind of faith stands out to people and they want to know what's the reason for the hope within you. But maintaining that faith when you're suffering doesn't just happen. We have to build our faith in God before the crisis hits. I was recently talking to a woman here in our church who's been suffering from ongoing debilitating health issues that you can't even imagine. She told me what saved her during those dark nights when she wanted to put an end to her suffering for once and for all. She said, it was not my family. She said, it was not my community. She said, what saved me is that I had invested in God's word and I knew God's character. People, let me ask you, are you investing in God's word so that you know in your heart the character of God so that you will be prepared to suffer well? Because if you do, you will be like Naomi and the people around you will marvel at your hope and you may have a Ruth in your life who sees that and says, I want that hope for myself. Well, back to our story. When Naomi realizes that Ruth is not gonna give up, uh, she stops trying to convince her to go back home. And so they, the two of them continue on in the road to Bethlehem. And in verse 19, they finally arrive back in Bethlehem. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi and Ruth arrive and it causes quite a stir, quite a commotion there in Bethlehem. The women of the village hardly even recognize her anymore. It's been over 10 years. It's like when you go back to your high school reunions, like nobody recognizes each other because you're all you know, 10 years older and larger. But it's not just that she's 10 years older. She's also come back without her husband. She's also come back without her two sons. And she's got this Moabite girl with her. And Naomi tells the women of the village, don't call me Naomi. Because Naomi means pleasant. It means sweet. Instead, they should call her Mara because she is bitter. And the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. When she left Bethlehem, she left full. When she returned from Moab, she was empty. Naomi doesn't do say this to accuse God. She's not accusing God at all, but rather she's acknowledging that God is sovereign over all things, including over her suffering. But I want you to notice something as she's talking to these women in Bethlehem, because Naomi addresses God by using two different names for God in here. She uses the name, the Lord, and she uses the name, the Almighty. When Naomi calls him the Lord, she is using the Hebrew name, Yahweh, Yahweh, this is the name that God uses when he makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And he says to them, you will be my people and I will be your God. 
So the name Yahweh is that covenantal, deep, relational name, and it speaks of the intimacy of God and his people. The name Yahweh speaks of God's imminence. But then Naomi also turns around and calls him the Almighty. And here she's using the Hebrew name Shaddai, which speaks of his power, his strength, his sovereignty. It emphasizes God's omnipotence. It speaks of God's transcendence. So why are these two names so significant? Well, I don't know about you, but in times when I have faced suffering in my life, I tend to doubt one of two things. I either start doubting God's goodness or God's strength. Because either God doesn't care about me and doesn't care that I'm suffering, or he does care, but he can't do anything about it. In other words, suffering causes us to doubt either God's loving kindness towards us, or it causes us to start doubting his omnipotence. But in using both of these names, Naomi is refusing to believe this false dichotomy. She's proclaiming that he is both. He is both the Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal God, full of loving kindness, who cares deeply for his people and wants to be in relationship with his people. But he's also the Almighty, El Shaddai, the one with the power to change any all circumstances as the omnipotent God. In other words, Naomi trusts that God is both strong and that God is kind. That doesn't mean that she isn't wrestling with God in her trials, not at all. She acknowledges that she's in bitter circumstances. She acknowledges that she is empty. But even in her grief, she knows God's character. She knows his name. She knows that he is both kind and strong. With that, we come to verse 22, which is the conclusion of the chapter. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is a good summary of chapter one. Naomi and Ruth have returned and we finish this chapter with this little glimmer of hope. You may not know what that glimmer of hope is yet, but it says that it's the beginning of the barley harvest, which happens in late April and early May. And next week, we're gonna see why the barley harvest is so important to the redemptions part of this story. But for this week, I wanna make one final observation with you. This book is named Ruth. And Ruth truly is a a woman who has commendable faith. But I think the real hero of this story is Naomi. As we go through this book over the next several weeks, I think you will find that the narrative arc of the story is Naomi's journey. You see that in her name. She starts the story as Naomi, the pleasant one, the sweet one. She ends up coming back to Bethlehem and she's Mara, the bitter And in chapters two, three, and four of Ruth, we're going to see how God changes her from being Mara and restores her to being Naomi the Pleasant. When when she leaves Bethlehem and goes to Moab, she says, I was full. But now in chapter one, she comes back to Bethlehem and she says, the Lord has made me empty. And over the next three chapters, we're going to see how God is going to make her full again. This morning, you may feel like you're on that same journey. Maybe this morning you feel like you have moved from pleasantness to bitterness. You have moved from being full to being empty. You know what it feels like for God to leave you empty. And may I encourage you this morning. First of all, don't deny the grief. Naomi is very real with the women of Bethlehem. She's not pretending everything is just great. She's changed her name for heaven's sakes. She's clearly and publicly grieving. But amidst her grief, I want to remind you of those two names of God that Naomi uses. First, you can trust 
that God is Yahweh, the covenantal God, the God who cares for you. He's a God filled with loving kindness. He's a God who wants intimate relationship with you. So don't run away from God in your troubles. Run to him in your troubles. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But secondly, you can also trust that God is El Shaddai, the Almighty, and he has the power to overcome whatever circumstances you face. And through whatever you are going through, God will redeem you. And that doesn't mean he will necessarily redeem you from your circumstances, but he will redeem you through your circumstances. And we can be confident of that because that is the gospel story, isn't it? The gospel story is that Jesus came and he died for our sins and that he was buried and he raised on the third day. But notice God did not deliver the son from the cross, but he, del- but he redeemed him through the suffering on the cross so that he could bear our sins. But then God did not leave him dead. And three days later, he raised him from the dead. And so Jesus could not have had that resurrection victory without first having gone through the suffering, having endured the shame and the suffering of the cross, but then having been brought through it, he now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So if you are struggling this morning, if you're in circumstances that leave you feel empty, I want you to be able to trust in one who can sympathize with your pain. I want you to trust in Christ who overcame and who rose from the dead and he can and he will as a result of that redeem you from your suffering and your shame and from your sin because he is both strong and he is kind. Let's pray.